This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 23, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The White House attempted to end DACA, the Obama-era program that aimed to protect child immigrants from deportation. The Supreme Court responded that the Trump administration had done it the wrong way. The White House response, a new order that will, with a few exceptions, freeze guest workers entering the United States through the end of the year. Cato's Alex Narasta describes the economic damage that this order will likely do. The president uh, was handed something of a rebuke by the U.S. Supreme Court. They said that uh, his attempts to end the deferred action on childhood arrivals, the Obama-era program that we should be fair and say was sort of invented by the president uh, at that time, uh, his attempt to undo it, uh, he did it the wrong way, according to the Supreme Court. So what has he done in response? So what he's done in response is uh, two things. One, he has said that he is going to repeal DACA, that it's going to make sure to do it correctly, dot their legal I's and cross their legal T's. And secondly, last night, he issued a presidential proclamation that will severely restrict the issuance of new guest worker visas in several categories, including the H-1B visa for skilled workers, as well as several other visas for lower skilled workers, and limit the government's ability to issue these visas to people uh, until the end of this year. And I will predict that if he wins re-election, he will continue to restrict the issuance of these visas for as long as he is in office. So um, what are the likely short-term impacts here? We're seeing a resurgence in uh, coronavirus in the United States. What does this mean for physicians that are you know, waiting in the wings or already scheduled to come to the United States to, to help? So there are several exceptions in the executive uh, in the proclamation. One of them is for healthcare workers who are working in coronavirus-related uh, fields, either as research or as medical providers. So that is a group of people who will not be uh, negatively affected nearly as much by this as some other groups. Who it really hurts are skilled workers coming in to work in other applications and other science and technology fields on the H-1B. Um, if you've noticed, all of us are working remotely currently, and one of the reasons why we're able to do so is because of cheap and available IT services. Uh, the majority of, uh, of H-1B workers work in IT services. They've made it possible for many of us to work remotely and to work, work cheaply remotely. So if we didn't have these immigrants over the last 30 years, um, many Americans would not have their jobs currently in white-collar professions. And this is exactly the time where we need our IT system to work as well as it possibly can to make sure that more Americans don't lose their job when um, there's a second wave, if that ever happens. Uh, but what this order does is basically make it so that these workers cannot come in in the future. With respect to, uh, you mentioned high-skilled workers, uh, with specific respect to those workers, uh, of what relevance is what they would be paid if they came to the U.S.? So the minimum wage for an H-1B worker in the United States is $60,000. They can't make less than that. That, of course, is above the median for a native-born American worker. But on top of that, when you compare it to the professions in which they work, the specific jobs, their wages are well above 
the median, well above the mean uh, across the board, even when you take a look at the geographical areas where they live. So like wages in Silicon Valley are higher than in Boise, Idaho. So even when you take a look at that, they make wages higher than what you would expect based on their profession and based on where they live. Now, one of the other differences the uh, Trump administration is going to be changing to the H-1B is currently there's 85,000 slots per year for these workers to work in firms. And if there are more applications, they allocate it via lottery, which is just a, a crazy inefficient way to do it. So what the Trump administration is going to be doing instead is just say the H-1B workers who have the highest expected wages, those 85,000 workers will be getting these visas. And that's fine. That's an improvement. That's a good thing. But unfortunately, none of them are going to be able to come in in the meantime. So it's a reform that will be good when the system is functioning again, uh, but it has no practical impact currently. So how much of this is actually tied to some attempt by uh, the Trump administration to, I don't know, give this uh, the patina of coronavirus protection for Americans? So this is really an extension of an earlier executive order back in uh, April where he blocked green cards and other visas from coming in. And that had two justifications. One was coronavirus. And the second was the economic damage that it had done. Um, This new proclamation, the one issued last night, drops the the virus justification almost entirely. Uh, It is focused almost 100% on the economic damage that has been done by the coronavirus and the need for economic protectionism to supposedly protect the jobs of native-born American workers. So uh, to to have limits on uh, the amount of money, a minimum amount of money that uh, H-1B workers uh, have to earn in order to qualify for that kind of um, visa, you sort of assume, well, these workers are in demand in the United States, and that would seem to indicate that there aren't a lot of Americans qualified to do those jobs. That's what it would imply. And that doesn't even include the thousands of dollars in visa fees that one, that the employer must pay to the government, the lawyer fees on top of that, that run usually between five and $10,000 uh, per hire. And what's interesting is a lot of the Americans who have these skills, instead of working in IT or science-related occupations, they work in jobs that make more money. They, a lot of them work in finance. A lot of them work in uh, management of H-1B folks. So a lot of Americans do have these skills. It's just that they have jobs that pay more. <laughs> so why would we want them to take jobs where they make a little bit less? It doesn't make any sense. For uh, many Republicans who are broadly supportive of uh, this president with respect to uh, immigration policy, uh, Ted Cruz and others, the, the consistent refrain I hear from them that is seems pretty incoherent to me is that we need to put Americans back to work first. Uh, and that has uh, it strikes me as a false choice when you understand that high-skilled uh, immigrants coming to the United States uh, create jobs for Americans in the United States. That's right. They create jobs through multiple different mechanisms. The first is by patenting, innovating, 
and creating new technology at an enormous rate. They are much more likely to patent than native-born Americans. And those uh, patents uh, translate into new production processes that expand production, expand hiring for native-born Americans. Also, by lowering the price of IT services, it allows much more efficient office operations that mean that more people can be hired. Uh, another way, and this is based on a lot of work by um, uh, a couple of Nobel Prize economists at the London School of Economics, uh, when, you, when it's easier and cheaper to hire somebody, such as by hire, having a visa system that works well, then firms hire more. And they hire more native-born Americans, they hire more immigrants, etc. These firms hire these immigrants that are more expensive to hire when they are expanding. And by doing that, it allows more Americans to also be hired. And then the last way, which is sort of the most obvious, but it always needs to be said, is that immigrants come here, they take jobs, they work hard, and then they spend their money here. And that money that they spend in the consumer economy creates job opportunities for Americans, particularly low and mid-skilled Americans. Uh, and there's research about this that shows that every new immigrant in the United States creates about 1.2 jobs, uh, specifically on the local level, 62% of them for native-born Americans, and the vast majority of them in sort of mid- and lower-skilled occupations, you know, blue-collar jobs. So the notion that we have this fixed-pie labor market, that there is a lump of labor, that because an immigrant has a job, that means a native doesn't have a job is sort of a, a medieval economic thinking that I thought went out of fashion in the 1700s. But apparently it seems to be driving most of the justification for our immigration policy currently. A lot of Republicans uh, were extremely critical of Barack Obama for seemingly having invented uh, DACA out of thin air. Um, and this president has just made a proclamation attempting to do something pretty similar. Um, one, I guess, are Republicans actually critical of this president for doing it this way um, without consulting or even uh, getting permission from Congress to do so? And what powers does the president actually have in this area? A few Republicans have been critical. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina uh, tweeted last night that he doesn't support this type of uh, policy, doesn't think it's right. Uh, Senator John Cornyn from Texas uh, sent a letter a few weeks ago asking the president not to do it. But there are very few Republicans that I've seen who question the methods through which he has done it. Under the law and the Immigration and Nationality Act, there are several seemingly conflicting statutes that say the president on the one hand can bar any, any immigrants he wants to enter the U.S. if he deems them detrimental. And there are others that say he has a very limited authority to do that. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court in 2018, in the case of Trump v. Hawaii, ruled that the president has basically unlimited authority to ban any immigrants from coming to the United States at any time if he deems them a detriment. And he basically just needs to waive a very uh, whatever justification he wants for them being a detriment to the United States. So we're basically, as I like to say, uh, living in an era where there really isn't much immigration law anymore. It's basically just rule by presidential proclamation. And this is the system that we have thanks to the Supreme Court ruling in 2018. Is uh, their appetite in Congress? And of course, a lot of a lot of things are, may change uh, with this election year. But uh, is there an appetite in Congress 
perhaps among Democrats, to claw back some of the authority given to the president with respect to immigration? Democrats have introduced a uh, a bill to reduce the president's arbitrary power to stop uh, legal immigration on a whim. Uh, that bill is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to even get a vote. Um, it probably won't even get a vote in the House. Uh, and if it does, uh, the president would have to not veto it. And of course, that's not going to happen. And I can't imagine um, if Joe Biden wins that he will want to diminish his own power by not vetoing that bill. And I can't imagine that Democrats will suddenly feel the urge to reduce the power of the president when their guy's in the office. So no, I think there's almost no chance that Congress will step up and start acting like Congress anytime soon. Alex Narasta directs immigration policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 